Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, we look at a banner year for Canada at the Oscars and what it means for the Canadian film industry. We find out why what's buried in the permafrost that covers a huge portion of this planet may contain threats, both new and very ancient, to flora, fauna, and us. The chief commercial officer of low-cost airline Flair joins us to explain how four of its aircraft were seized over the weekend, stranding an estimated 1,300 passengers right at the beginning of March break and what they're doing to fix the problem. But first, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank on Friday sent shockwaves through the banking and tech sectors over the weekend. Authorities in the U.S. stepped in to guarantee all deposits late Sunday. We speak to one startup owner in Seattle who said SVP's collapse left him on the brink of disaster. You know, banking isn't really about money. It's about trust. And the enemy of that, of course, is distrust and panic. We had another vivid reminder of what that looks like over the past 96 hours in the U.S. Now, if you've never heard of Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank before Friday, you're probably not alone. Uh, But Silicon Valley Bank was America's 16th largest. It was a go-to in the tech world, a leading lender for startups before it went apparently from fairly firm financial footing on Wednesday to gone. By Friday, U.S. regulators closed SBP after it experienced a traditional bank run. That's, of course, when depositors, you'll remember this from It's a Wonderful Life, when depositors rushed to withdraw their funds all at once. What happened? Um, well, they moved to sell some bonds last week because a lot of their clients needed cash. Of course, there's a bit of a cash crunch in the tech world right now. They sold those bonds at a loss. Then they sold stock. And then confidence waned. Then confidence disappeared. And the result was they were gone. There was, of course, fear that that contagion could spread. Regulators moved in on New York-based Signature Bank over the weekend. That closed, too. So together, the second and third largest bank failures in U.S. history happened in the span of just 48 hours. Now, this isn't quite like 2008. It's not widespread. But still, it matters. So late last night, reassurance from Washington that the system was indeed safe and deposits in both banks would be guaranteed. They also created a program that effectively threw a lifeline to other banks to shield them from a similar run on deposits. President Biden was front and center today ahead of markets opening. All customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured. I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. That includes small businesses across the country that bank there and need to make payroll, pay their bills and stay open for business. And Biden also promised some new regulations uh, because since the 2000, it was the biggest since the 2008 financial crisis, biggest bank failure, as I mentioned. Uh, Some of the Dodd-Frank law passed after that crisis to prevent a repeat had been rolled back under former President Trump back in 2018. I'm going to ask Congress and the banking regulators to strengthen the rules for banks to make it less likely this kind of bank failure would happen again and to protect American jobs and small businesses. Now, in the next half hour, we'll get to what the impact could be here in Canada. But first, it has been a very tense time for many companies out there with significant funds tied up in Silicon Valley Bank. One of them uh, is Seattle-based Shelf Engine with 40 employees. It was founded back in 2015. They use AI to help grocery stores reduce food waste, and no, a noble task. Uh, SVP helped the company process checks and payments, and all of its startup cash was locked in the bank. CEO and co-founder Stefan Kalb joins me now from Seattle. Stefan, thank you. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on the show, Ben. Uh, a tense weekend, I suspect. <laughs> Indeed, it's a very <laughs> tense weekend. You know, we walked into the weekend thinking uh, we're going to have to start planning some contingency plans here um, and most likely um, have to think about a company shutdown. Um, so, indeed, it was quite tense. That, that much. Uh, tell me a bit about just, just how SVP, had, what your dealings with them were, how they helped you start out, and what was tied up uh, come last week. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so one thing that's really important to understand, and, and I think a lot of people outside of the startup world probably don't know this, but SDB is kind of the gold standard for, um, or I should say was the gold standard right. for technology companies and startups. And it was almost expected um, from an investor to have uh, an SVB account. And the thing that kind of progressed and the other important part here is that SVB made one particularly important deal with most every startup, which was if we're going to lend you money, we're going to want you to keep all of your assets in our bank account. Right. And so when we entered this situation um, on Thursday, we recognized how important of a problem this was going to be for us because every one of our dollars was in the SVB bank account. And that created an enormous amount of stress because we didn't have an immediate contingency plan to make payroll, to pay vendors, et cetera. Um, so it was indeed a very stressful environment, kind of walking straight into yeah. And why, I mean, why would you too? I mean, uh, it was pointed out today that I think Fortune Magazine, you know, had, had listed SVP as one of the most, uh, you know, best banks in America or top 30 exactly. banks in America just a few days earlier. How did it, how did it happen? How did you all of a sudden realize that things were, were getting very shaky very fast? You know, the, the, the biggest realization for me was um, when credible people started t- telling me you need to move your money. So, you know, it started early afternoon on, on Thursday. My co-founder sends me a message, said, hey, have you heard about this, this madness with SVB? And then, I mean, just minutes later, I started getting a deluge of, of messages from investors and colleagues and started thinking to myself, whoa, this is not just some random story that's hit the news. This is something very real that's happening quickly for us. And we took the immediate action of going and opening up a bank account and wiring funds um, out of the SVB account. Um, but unfortunately, that's um, after SVB had already completely drawn um, all their funds from the, from the Federal Reserve and, and had nothing left. Um, so we were not able to get our funds out of SVB. Um, so, yeah, it was it was very stressful Thursday. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, a company like yours, you, I'm sure it's it's like a bit bit like a family. You know, you have your your employees, and all of a sudden, to be caught up in this, uh, you'd have to think about what to tell them, right? Yeah, you know, so that was actually a really hard one because um, we walked into Thursday night thinking to ourselves, okay, well, maybe there's a chance that that wire is going to get sent out and we'll have money in our other bank account in the morning. But come, you know, a few hours in the morning, um, kind of obsessively refreshing the page, um, realized that we were not going to get our cash. And so we decided to get the entire team together and we were just quite transparent with everyone. We said, hey, you know, this is a crisis and um, we don't know what's going to happen yet. Um, we just need to stand by at this given point, and I'm going to um, stay in, in communication with you. And, you know, a huge credit to the team for staying on and making it happen. Um, you know, we're a seven-day-a-week operation. We serve over 2,000 grocery stores across the United States. We have to stay in business um, to just keep, you know, the, the U.S. grocery business going. And they did it, and they didn't panic, and they, they, they stuck to the course. Um, and I, I'm really proud of my, my team for being able to do that. 
And then yesterday, late, by the way, I mean, we're on the we're both on the West Coast, so it wasn't quite as late, but still it felt like it was late. Uh, you, you hear the news. I think you were hoping you would hear. How did you receive that? And what exactly was announced in terms of, you know, your prison? Yeah. So, you know, obviously I was like, could you guys, you know, just deliver that news a day earlier? That would have been great for my heart health. Um, but it was uh, it was really um, quite a release. And, and the reason why it was really important um, that we delivered the, the, delivered the news and it was it was structured in this in this particular way is because the fundamentals of our economy depend on safe banking. And they depend on the fact that um, we know that when we deposit our money in a bank, we know that that money is safe. And so, you know, we weren't looking for a bailout. I think the equities of uh, the equity holders of, of SVB took a risk on owning shares of SVB, and that didn't work out, and so be it for them, right? But when we come in as deposit depositors and we expect to, to keep our money in a safe place, that's a really important principle to uphold. And furthermore, especially um, for everyone in Canada and internationally, you know, you really depend on some of these larger banks. And we could have had a massive ripple effect across the country, and especially in Canada, if this bank um, depositors would not have been made whole. And this is, this is a really critical component of, of our economy. Yeah. And, and what did it mean for you concretely when that was announced? It meant everything back to business as normal? Yeah, practically. So, you know, we were had to bring our doubts. We're like, how is FDIC going to act this quickly? Um, how is the Treasury going to act this quickly? And sure enough, um, this morning, uh, there was a lot of action. Um, we were, um, I think, about, you know, 30,000 plus people trying to log into our bank accounts at the same time and wire money right, out. Right, of course. Um, it, was, it was quite a mess. There were a lot of glitches, um, but we were able to, to wire um, all of our funds out. Um, into a J.P. Morgan Chase account and um, basically have, um, you know, now the confidence that we can um, continue to pay all of our vendors and employees on, the, on a regular schedule. Um, and that was critical because, you know, I'd, I'd gotten phone calls um, during, during the weekend from, from our largest customers saying, hey, I'm nervous. What's, what's going to happen if, if you shut down? And so um, concretely, it was a huge sigh of relief to be able to um, to communicate that um, to our employees, our, our customers, and our investors. Yeah, I mean, this was life or death, right, for you? Yeah, and, and you know, frankly speaking, I would have had to, to shut down the company by, by the end of this week because um, if, if I don't meet payroll, um, I'm personally liable for it, which means, you know, um, and that's pretty common for most companies, um, for executives who knowingly uh, make people work and, and uh, aren't able to pay, they're, they're personally liable for it. And I just didn't want to put myself in that kind of a situation. So um, our end of payroll would have been Friday. And the, the $250,000 guarantee from the FDIC would have only kind of taken us through the rest of the week. So that was, that was what I was facing. And I was really um, hoping not to have to make that decision. Stefan, you explained just how important SVB was to tech startups right across uh, certainly the Pacific Northwest, but also, I'm sure, on this side of the border here in Canada. What's going to be the impact now that this organization or this bank is gone? Yeah, you know, actually, I know quite a few um, Canadian uh, startups and tech companies that use Silicon Valley Bank. And I'll give you an example of one thing that is going to be really challenging, um, and that's really around the fact that commercial banking is not really built for fast-growing technology companies. 
So for example, I'll give you an example. We have a credit card that has a million dollar line on the credit card. And we process, um, you know, probably something like a million dollars every couple of weeks on that credit card. Now, if I go to any of the regular um, credit card companies, they are not going to understand our standard of the business and how to function. But Silicon Valley Bank could. There's only a couple real alternatives out there. There's a couple startup banks um, like Mercury and Brex, but the majority of commercial banks do not function within the realm of how we work. And that's going to be really complicated, especially um, as you as you were stating earlier, all of these startups are starting to pull their cash. That's why Silicon Valley Bank started selling these bonds. Now, what's going to happen is these startups are going to be looking for more cash in a debt uh, fashion, and there's not really many places to turn to except for some of these startup banks that I that I just mentioned. So it's going to be really challenging. And and many tech startups out there are going to, I imagine, not not actually get to start up right if there's no money out there for them, or they have difficulty finding that money. Yeah, I mean, this is also just coming on the heels of you know a really challenging fundraising environment. Not only is there less capital coming out from venture capitalists, but the valuations are decreasing. And, you know, we're in a position where getting funding right now is just really hard. So my guess is there's not really a silver bullet. I think some of these startup banks will be able to deploy some capital, but nothing like what Silicon Valley Bank was able to do. And so we're going to be in a cash crunch kind of situation. I feel fortunate because uh, my company is on a really good path. And we're in a position where we don't need funding um, like some of the other companies out there do. But um, honestly, it's going to be a really tough go here, um, probably for the next couple of years for for companies to find capital. And the mood today at Shelf Engine when you came in and I guess everyone showed up for work (laughs) and you had this very tense meeting on Friday. What was the mood like today? Um, You know, I have this really interesting job, Ben, where I get to deliver really bad news and I get to deliver really great news. Um, so honestly, I just totally jumped the gun last night. I sent a message to the team said, Hey, I'm sure you've already seen the news. We're quite excited. Um, so it didn't feel like, you know, we should celebrate. It doesn't feel quite right as, you know, a bank did collapse and there's still some, um, real economic tremors, but, um, we are, uh, really quite happy and confident in terms of the path going forward here. Well, Stefan, thank you so much. I'm glad, you know, I think everyone, I, I read an interview that you'd done on Thursday and you didn't sound nearly as happy. So I'm glad everything <laughs> worked out for the for the company. I can't imagine what it would be like to see uh, you, not only just your savings, but I mean, a company built on the savings that had suddenly become inaccessible to you. So I'm glad that it's all uh, all's well that ends well for now, at least. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. And thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> Well, in the last half hour, we talked with, we talked with Stefan Kalb of Shelf Engine, a Seattle-based company that uh, uses AI to help grocery stores reduce food waste, about just what a tense weekend it was. They had all their money tied up in Silicon Valley Bank, which, of course, went bust on Friday. They tried to get it out on Thursday, couldn't. Last night, of course, uh, official federal officials stepped in and, and made depositors whole, so they were okay today. But can you imagine, can you imagine watching your entire work of the last they were you know founded in 2015 so eight years of work everything you've built hanging by a thread because well because people lost confidence in the bank and it's a fairly straightforward process what happened i mean it's 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 complicated but in a nutshell 
um, you know, the tech tech industry has been in trouble recently. They've been needing more cash. They're burning through more cash than they were in the past. Uh, SVB was really a bank that serviced the tech industry almost exclusively. Um, and they found themselves having to dole out more cash than they had. So to make that happen, they had to sell bonds that they had bought. The problem was that bonds have lost value because interest rates are high. So they had to sell those bonds at a loss. Now, already people were starting to wonder what's happening here. Don't you have the money? I mean, again, it all goes back to it's a wonderful life, if you remember. It's that simple, right? Do you have our money or not? It's a question of confidence. Then they sold, sold stock as well. So people were starting to think, well, wait a second. They don't have the money here. So the bad decision here was to buy the bonds. That was the issue that happened here. So it wasn't – their business model was pretty solid. They just made, it seems, one terrible mistake and the whole thing collapsed in just lightning at a light lightning speed. Um, and it left companies such as Shelf Engine stuck. What were they going to do if they couldn't access any money or if it was only 250 grand? It's as much as they could get out under normal circumstances or get back under normal circumstances. So um, a very tense time. And although it happened in the US, I mean, I think a lot of us here understand the notion that a lot of what we do financially whether it's a bank or whether it's a ticket that we buy. I mean, all the things that we purchase other than goods such as food are a promise to deliver, right? That's what they are. You're essentially buying a promise. You, the bank promises you to give you a bit of return on your money and give you your money back when you need it. When you buy a plane ticket, and we're going to get to that in the next hour, uh, when you buy a plane ticket, you're essentially buying a promise to give you a service, which is to fly you from point A to point B uh, on schedule or on time, or at least as much as humanly possible. So again, it's all about trust and confidence. And I was curious, because I was thinking about it tonight, I can be relatively lenient, lenient with companies if they give me a good reason for why things went wrong, right? And they're apologi apologetic about it. I was wondering if you've ever lost confidence in a product or a service, and how did they win you back? Because well, that's what it boils down to when a company loses trust, specifically a bank. And again, we all know it, what happens. I mean, what happened to Silicon Valley Bank was a classic bank run, as we understand uh, about how they work. What have you done in the past to try to win back or what, what have companies done to try to win back your confidence? And did it work? Did you go back? What does it take when an organization loses your confidence to go back to them? One eight seven seven. 399-9898 is our text line, one 399 9898 Let me know where you are and who you are. And what we're talking about tonight is trust. When a company or someone offering you a service loses your trust, have they ever been able to win it back? Is it vouchers? Is it discounts? Is it a really good apology? Is it, is it transparency? What is it that a company can do to win back your business if somehow they've managed to lose your trust. Perhaps they can't win it back at all. We're going to talk this half hour about, again, about Silicon Valley Bank, not just uh, Signature Bank in New York also closed on, uh, was shut down on Sunday. And there was serious concern yesterday that there would be contagion here, that there would be, that this would spill over the borders, hit the banking sector, hit the tech sector, who are, of course, a big part of uh, Silicon Valley Bank's uh, customer base. In fact, really the vast majority of it on both sides of the border. Uh, and so things started to unfold in Canada as well over the weekend. Um, on Sunday, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions said Silicon Valley Bank's Toronto branch had been, which was primarily lending to corporate clients uh, and didn't hold any commercial or individual deposits in Canada, that they were taking it over. And now the size of its, of its operations in this country were pretty small. 
uh, it had about, I think I was reading $435 million in loans outstanding as of the end of last year, $864 million in total assets, um, and its branch opened in 2019. So it wasn't like you had direct depositors and so on. Uh, Still, they moved to make sure, A, they took it over to make sure that that part of it was taken care of, and B, they also went out to try to figure out what kind of impact it would have on the tech sector here, right? Because it had a lot of, it had a lot of, it still did business with companies on this side of the border as well. So at the finance department's request over the weekend, the Council of Canadian Innovators went to its 150 members to see what the fallout from SVB's failure could be. Now, John uh, Rufolo is not only uh, the vice chair of that organization, the CCI. He's also been a longtime uh, investor in the tech sector, so he knows of what he speaks. Uh, he was clearly watching what was happening across the border very closely over the weekend. He's the founding, founder and managing partner of Mavericks, uh, Mavericks Private Equity in Toronto, and John Rufolo joins us now. John, thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Pleasure being here. This has been, you know, for, for, for lay people watching this unfold, it has been all very, very quick. Were you surprised about what happened to Silicon Valley Bank? I was not surprised that they were in trouble because of the broken balance sheet. I was shocked at the speed on which the bank run occurred. It, it was just dizzyingly fast. I mean, if anyone thinks back to, oh, it's a wonderful life, this happened in like music video time. It was so fast. I, and and what, what the most bizarre part of it is, their their greatest supporters were the ones that really initiated and triggered the run on the bank, which is rather ironic. Now you're heavily you're you're intimately involved in this in the Canadian tech space. Uh, I know yeah. that you were speaking to a lot of your membership uh, um, over the past little while at the Council of Canadian Innovators. What will be the fallout? Do you think in this country? I think it will be rather modest. You know, certainly there was no issue with respect to deposits and and they didn't really have a deposit taking capability in Canada in any in any event. The issue really that we're seeing uh, and, and again, it's isolated circumstances uh, for those folks that had untapped lines of credits and that uh, had hoped to rely on them in the near term will have to seek other sources of capital now. Virtually all of them have investors already, so it really becomes the investor's problem to help them out. But that's what an investor is for. The real issue will be the long-term impact of having such a, an excellent competitor uh, likely out of the Canadian market. And what is the impact of that? Yeah, because I was reading SVB Canada's um press releases when they first came into when they first sort of opened up here i guess in 2019 officially and they seem to be um aggressively pursuing a lot of this space that um that, w- that would lead you to believe that there 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 were canadian companies startups that were dependent on their presence or at least taking advantage of their presence yeah i mean certainly 10 years ago they were virtually the only game in town and what happened over the last 5 years the canadian banks took notice and really started to compete against them with the likes of CIBC, BMO, and RBC, uh, the most aggressive. You combine that with uh, the BDC, EDC, and the number of sources of capital in the venture debt space had increased immeasurably. So 
they were always a high quality competitor, but really no longer the only game in town. Their disappearance, though, I would I would gather that a little less competition is is never great for those who are seeking Correct. to borrow. Correct. So that's where I say we're watching over the medium to long term. They were a very aggressive competitor, and they were keeping the banks in particular uh, honest in terms of pricing and terms. And, you know, one of my concerns was, uh oh, are the banks going to use their position to start to get more expensive again? I've spoken with three CEOs of the five banks and all of them have said that that is not the case because there's so much competition amongst just the banks themselves. So I I hope that is the case. Uh, I will hold them to that. But that's really the major concern that I have at this point. In terms of what's happened today, uh, we've seen bank stocks. I mean, things seem to have leveled out a little bit as the day day has come to an end. But um, do you think that the I mean, considering how quickly this happened, and I was I saw a biography of you and I know that you worked in a bank. You were a bank manager when you were 17, which is yes. so you, you, you know how it works right on the front lines was enough done to try to, to try to restore confidence today. Do you think? Well, I think that there is going to be a tale of two banks now in Canada, you know, the 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 five uh, large banks dominate the market, and and we've been privileged to have a very strong banking system. But there's a downside, you know, uh, to the oligopoly. But you look in the United States, there is becoming a tale of two types of banks: the regional banks and the very very large ones. And the regional banks are still taking it on the chin from a stock price perspective, where the very large banks, the uh, the fear there has has been somewhat mitigated. So I think right now there's going to be a rush to perceived quality. And, you know, the question will be, will customers do the same? Yeah, because in the case of SVB, I mean, it looked pretty solid right up till it didn't. Uh, and you mentioned, of course, that it wasn't that there were some warning signs there with its balance yes. sheet. But but this this would certainly put I mean, if you're just a most Canadians won't have heard of SVB, but anyone who I mean, as you, you banking's about banking's about confidence. Right. And when anything like this happens, people get spooked. Right. So it's an interesting comment you made. A bank is built on trust and confidence, not deposits and loans. And this is just another example. And what people don't really understand is the business of SVB was great. There was no holes that I can see in their business. But what it was, was a very bad investment mistake made on the treasury side. And just goes to show that if you're not watching all aspects of your business, your business could collapse. And in the case of a bank, having a strong balance sheet is absolutely critical. John Ruffalo is with us this half hour, managing partner of Mavericks Private Equity. We're talking about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and all that that entails and has entailed over the past 96 hours or so. Uh, in the longer term here, John, when you look at this space uh, that you know well, you've been you know, an investor in, in disruptive stuff for a very long time. The landscape, and this is just a layperson's view of this, the landscape seems to be changing very quickly. What's happening and, and will it be ultimately good for the Canadian tech sector? Well, it's never good, ultimately, when a a very good ecosystem partner goes down like that. However, this is 
just one additional uh, shot in the arm when the tech sector has already bust from a financing perspective as a result of the increasing interest rates. You just hate to see another another shot in the arm uh, at this time. Just the timing just couldn't be worse. Yeah, it, it, take me a bit behind the scenes over the weekend. What was going on? I mean, we saw we saw statements from Canada, from the finance minister and others, and so on. But the phones must have been burning up over the weekend over this. Yes, uh, let's just say that I had a uh, defibrillator uh, on standby uh, over the weekend. So what happened was uh, we were in uh, constant contact with the federal government, the Department of Finance, and the the Deputy Prime, uh, Prime Minister's office, and they were on top of things. And they were really trying to understand, was government intervention uh, going to be required in Canada? Was there going to be a contagion uh, issue? And we spent a lot of time through the Council of Canadian Innovators to get data and to really understand what is really going on, what was the the depth of the relationships with uh, with SVB. And we concluded that as long as the U.S. government stepped in to back the deposits, the risk to the Canadian tech sector would be muted. And, and thankfully, at 6 p.m. on Sunday night, we got the word that the U.S. government was backing those deposits. I mean, so many people will think back to 2008, 2009 when they see this, but the circumstances are, are, are as always, in every crisis, the circumstances are, are, are similar but different. Yes. Yes. In this case here, as far as we know right now, it is a case of a single bank making very poor investment decisions. In 2009, it was an entire banking sector that was investing in the mortgage-backed securities, and they were all cross-collateralized. And what you were really worried about was when one bank went down, was it going to drag a whole series of banks? And all of a sudden, you have something that you just can't contain. This was not the same circumstance. And what the U.S. government has done right now is not a bailout either. It is just simply backing the orderly winding down of the organization. Any thoughts on what lies ahead now than in the next few weeks? It seems like confidence has at least been maintained yeah. to a certain extent but, yeah. well if people are asking why did this happen and how did it happen the u.s regulatory landscape is different than it is in canada and in 2018 the trump administration passed legislation to reduce the regulatory oversight for banks that had less than 250 billion dollars of assets and guess what SVB was one of those banks that lobbied to to have light regulation. So I think there is going to be a revisiting of that uh, because they don't want to go through this, uh, you know, surprise again. And I was reading that HSBC at least uh, has has purchased the British arm of SVB. Will we see? Could we see some of that? going on elsewhere as well, that banks will move in to pick up what, as you mentioned, was a pretty, was a very viable thing with one very bad mistake in it. Yes. So HSBC picked up the UK operations. Now, the Canadian operations are not really 
a segregated operation. We're still waiting for a potential U.S. acquirer of the U.S. business and whether that U.S. acquirer will also pick up the Canadian business. And if they don't, what you will see is the Canadian business auctioned off and the, a likely buyer would be one of Canada's uh, large banks. And amidst all this, Volkswagen came in today and made a huge announcement in the tech field. So it's been a confusing day for the for those looking in from the outside. Exactly. Well, we're on a roller coaster ride. Uh, that's that's what makes it fun. <laughs> John, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Might be a little tougher for Flair Airlines. It's been a frustrating weekend and beginning to March break for many of their passengers uh, as the discount carrier had to cancel a number of flights on Saturday. It happened after a New York-based hedge fund seized for which from whom they lease planes seized four of their aircraft uh, on Saturday. Uh, the seizures involved two aircraft in Toronto and one each in Edmonton and Waterloo. Uh, that represents 20% of their fleet of 19 aircraft. And that left passengers high and dry, as the saying goes, or grounded and frustrated, to be exact. This is Leon Caldwell, who is trying to get back to BC from Tucson in Arizona, speaking with Jill Bennett on CKNW's Jill Bennett Show this afternoon. We proceeded to our gate, uh, and at 1020... Uh, when we were to uh, depart at 1040. Uh, at 1020, the people at the gate uh, informed us the flight was cancelled. The crew was sick and there was no replacement. The employees there had very little to offer. They gave us a phone number to call to make arrangements for hotels that Flair would cover. And they had no other information aside from that. There you go. One passenger stuck over the weekend when Flair had to cancel a bunch of flights. The low-cost airline is working to rebook customers or reimburse them, apparently. The cancellations left as many as 1,300 passengers stranded. Um, the airline called the move by the Lisor extreme and unusual. And today, the head of the airline was out talking to at a press conference today, uh, admitting that, of course, that uh, two of these, four of these airplanes uh, had been seized due to overdue payments, apparently. And also saying that one of Canada's two major airlines are trying to kneecap the discount carrier's operations. Here is Stephen Jones, the CEO of Flair. We've come in and upset the cozy duopoly. And as a consequence, people want us out of business. And we do believe that there were negotiations going on behind the scenes between one of the majors and the lessor um, to, you know, hurt Flair. There you go. That's the CEO of Flair, Stephen Jones. Now, what to make of that? Uh, it's hard to tell, right? How, how, do you, how, do you, how do you prove that? But we wanted to get some more answers. So joining me now is Garth Lund. He's the chief commercial officer at Flair Airlines. Garth, thank you. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me on. So perhaps walk our listeners through what's happened here, because uh, I know there's, the, the stories are pretty straightforward, but, but how did this unfold for you uh, late last week? So Flair Airlines um, has had uh, or been involved in a commercial dispute with one of our suppliers or a lessor of one of our of some of our aircraft, which resulted in uh, the leases for those aircraft being terminated early on Saturday morning. Uh, this was an un- unexpected turn of events, not something uh, which uh, which we had anticipated. This res- resulted in the cancellation of twelve flights on Saturday. 
and some disruption for our customers on those flights. We've since recovered our schedule. Uh, we've put plans in place to, to protect our schedule and protect our customers. We are flying back to a normal schedule since, uh, since Sunday, and we've been helping the passengers impacted by the disruption experienced on Saturday. Was this unexpected? I mean, I understand how plane leasing works, but this sounds like it's been going on for longer. Was this unexpected to the airline that this action would be taken? And if so, why? Uh, yes, it was absolutely unexpected. We have been in a dialogue uh, with uh, the lessor in question, uh, communicating with them. Uh, we do have a dispute. You know, our view is that they have taken um, a rather unusual and extreme approach to remedying that dispute. This is not something which uh, we had anticipated happening. Was there, I mean, there have been lots of, um, in these circumstances such as these, right? I mean, office, often passengers aren't going to see the dispute and think, oh, I get it. They're going to say, where's the plane, right? So I think in this case, was there no way of anticipating that this might happen? I mean, they, they, obviously they seized them and then you couldn't couldn't fly them, right? Right. So this was unexpected. Um, I think we put plans in place then to return to normalcy. We've taken steps like activating three of our spare aircraft uh, to cover the schedule, as well as bringing in another aircraft from outside so that we can uh, ensure that our full schedule is operational um, and has been since yesterday. We've really been focused on helping our customers uh, because we think that's the right thing to do. Um, so that's really been what we've concentrated on over the last uh, 48 hours or so um, and ensuring our customers can get to their destinations as soon as possible. So how have you gone about doing that? Because I understand, of course, it's March break. There's a lot of lot of demand out there. Um, you don't have a huge fleet, 19 aircraft total, and four of these were had been seized. Um, how, how how did you go about doing that? And and what plans have you? Do you have? Is there anyone still stranded? So you're right. It is a very busy spring break uh, weekend uh, with a lot of people um, on the move. Of the customers who were impacted, we've offered a few options. So. Uh, the first option is that if you prefer not to travel, you can take a full refund. Um, if you would still like to travel, um, our first priority was to reaccommodate our customers on the next available flare flight. Um, and for anyone who uh, we couldn't accommodate by the end of today, uh, we've offered the option to rebook with another airline. Either customers can directly book with another airline, submit the receipts to us, and we will uh, reimburse the cost. Or uh, the customer can reach out to us and uh, to our contact center and we can uh, work with them to find alternative travel arrangements with either with Flair or with another airline to find a solution that uh, that works for each person. Um, we've also provided hotels for those customers who've um, had to stay overnight somewhere um, as part of their journey. Um, so I think we've really focused on doing the right thing for our customers. Um, we've also been proactively calling uh, customers who have been affected by the disruption to see whether they need anything or if we can help in any way. Um, so I think so far we've we've spoken to hundreds of, of customers who were impacted, and um, I think we are uh, well on the way to finding solutions for, for the majority of people. What's going to happen to these planes? I think that's a matter for the lessor. I think at Flair we are focused on running our schedule. As I mentioned, we've activated three spare aircraft plus brought in one more so that we can um, continue to operate the schedule as normal, and that's really our focus. There are reports today, um, including from, from, I guess, your boss, the CEO, suggesting that there were some shenanigans going on here. What can you say about that? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think our view is that Flair, you know, it's a great proposition for the customer. And there are certain players in the industry who would rather see us fail. Um, we're offering, you know, the same product as, as many others in the industry for a much lower price. 
um, and that's something which does threaten certain airlines. We do suspect that in the background uh, there are some uh, some going goings on here. But I think you know, for us, what we really uh, what the key message really is is that we're here for the long term. Uh, we know some players don't want us around, but you know, we're here to stay and, and we'll thrive. Were you were you aware that that the lessor um, that two of your lessors I gather were were actually offering eleven of your aircraft to other airlines? Is that is that uh, were you aware of that? This is not uh, you know I think this is a matter for the lessor. I think mm-hmm. from Flair's perspective, you know we are current on all our lease payments. We've got our aircraft set up for the summer. We've got new aircraft uh, being delivered over the next few months as we grow our schedule. You know our focus is really on delivering low fares for our customers. Uh, you've worked at other discount airlines as well. For, for listeners who don't understand how it works when it comes to leasing a plane, what is the agreement when you have these planes? I mean, clearly you have monthly payments, um, and I imagine there must be some leeway for you as a company. But what has gone? What has happened here that we wouldn't understand if we'd never been in the business of leasing airplanes and working at a company like Flair or Wiz where you were before? I mean, typically, uh, lease arrangements between an airline uh, and a lessor are long-term agreements. They might cover 7, 9, 10, 12 years. Um, So they are um, over quite a long time horizon. Um, I think what's transpired here is quite unusual. You know, I think, as we've said, uh, the commercial dispute is over a a payment which was in arrears by by two days. Um, This is nothing to do with uh, liquidity or the financials, in fact, uh, we're actually investing more in the customer recovery than the lease payment in question. I think this is, you know, it comes down to a, a dispute between two different companies. Garth, when you when you look at, I mean, confidence, we've seen this, you know, we've been talking a lot about confidence in something. We saw what happened to Silicon Valley Bank over, over uh, late last week. Consumer confidence is paramount here, right? And in situations like this can certainly do damage to reputation, no matter who's at fault or who's to blame. Um, what's What's been, I mean, and I also gather that, I mean, employees, passengers, no one really had any warning here that this was going to happen. It must do a bit of damage to the reputation of the company. What do you do to try to gain passenger confidence back? I mean, I think, so we're um, absolutely clear that our customers uh, can feel confident um, in Flair. Um, I think how we want to maintain that confidence um, and help our customers is really in how we've been able to um, assist customers in recovering from the disruption. You can't necessarily control everything that happens in life, but you can um, control how you react to it. And I think how we've uh, tried to react here is really to do the right thing for our customers and, and put in place to to help get them on their way from Saturday and ensure that we are running our full schedule as normal um, as of Sunday. If you have a fleet of 19, where were the other three aircraft, the spares? Where were they sitting? Because I, I, that was, that was, I, I wasn't aware that you had that much um, bandwidth, so to speak. Right. Um, they were um, stationed uh, in a couple of airports across the country, and we were able to uh, move them into position over the course of Saturday so that they'd be ready to operate the schedule starting from Sunday uh, out of airports like Kitchener-Waterloo or Toronto and Edmonton. And 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 now just looking looking ahead because we have Easter the Easter long haul long weekends coming up. Uh, clearly, people are going to be remembering this story. What would you, what would you tell them then if if in the previous sort of holiday stretch, four of your airline aircraft went missing, leaving people stranded? You know they they lost days. But what do you tell customers now that with if they're looking ahead to book because everyone books well ahead for their holidays? What would you say? Um, I think I'd emphasize that um, we've really returned to normalcy at this point. Customers can feel confident. Um, We're really here to do the best for our customers. 
um, at low fares, they can have every confidence to to book with us going forward. And and any last sort of uh, explanation here for those who who may think that having one's planes ground sort of seized is a bit like owning a restaurant, having one's uh, ovens taken away, that, that this was something that could have been avoided or should have been avoided? Yeah, I mean, certainly it was um, unexpected. And I think we regret um, how uh, how events have played out. But we've, I think, really focused on taking those steps to, to help our customers and uh, we'll be uh, you know rectifying the situation going forward. Uh, really comes down to a, a dispute between two companies. It is a bit unusual, but... Um, I think um, you know we're we're back to normal now, and uh, really emphasizing that uh, we're here for the long term. And although some other players within the industry don't want to see that, um, we will be here for the long haul, and we will be thriving. I mean, I, I, I get where you're coming from, but would would major airlines go as far as sort of to disrupt your schedules by watching your planes get seized in a from a from, I, from a lease or is that is that does that happen in this business? I, I wasn't aware it was quite so cutthroat. I mean, I'm sure it is, but. There are some, you know, a lot of established interests within the industry. Um, a disruptive challenger like Flair comes along and, and that does create a threat. Uh, I think, you know, those established businesses might take actions to protect, uh, to try and protect their existing, uh, their business and their margins. It is a fairly competitive industry across the world. Um, and I think that's just something we have to, uh, we have to deal with. And I think we're not naive. I think we know what uh, we're getting in for and we really want to, uh, offer Canadians the, the same low airfares, which I think um, are common across the rest of the world. And because of a lack of competition, historically, uh, you know, you haven't had those low fares here in Canada. And, and, and that's what uh, that's what we're here to change. Right. And I think part of the problem here is that because we haven't had those low fares, when your planes get seized, uh, consumers worry because they're not used to these. They're not used to even the stories you hear in Europe or Britain. This is new to Canadians. And so something like this can have a big impact. Yep, that's right. It is an unusual event, but I think we are in a position to continue with the business as normal. We're operating the schedule as normal, um, and that's uh, what we'll continue to do. Garth Lund, I appreciate you taking the time to explain all this. Much Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, walking on the moon. It's been a long time since anyone's walked on the moon, hasn't it? Uh, we're going to find out early next month which Canadian astronauts are going to be part of this Artemis II mission. That's NASA's mission to NASA's mission to return to the moon. But part of this whole broader project is another very exciting piece of Canadian progress. We may soon have a lunar rover, the Canadian lunar rover, traveling to the far side of the moon, an area that is still full of mystery for us here down on Earth. Um, the country's first moon rover is set to put the CSA, the Canadian Space Agency, at the forefront, really, of space exploration. And part of what they're trying to do up there, part of what it will try to do, is find frozen water on the moon, because that is vital to everything that comes after when it comes to the kind of projects uh, and the kind of missions that NASA is looking at. Artemis II, of course, being part of that. Now, uh, very little, as I mentioned, very little is known about what we call the dark side of the moon, right? It's a puzzling place, more than just that Pink Floyd record. It has captured the imagination for a very, very long time. And so uh, a team here in Canada, along with some international partners, is getting ready. They're working on it now to send this 30-kilo rover. It's gonna, not going to walk on the moon. It's going to roll on the moon, um, to the south polar region of 
the moon. Again, to search for preserved frozen water that they think may lie a few meters below the surface. It's all very exciting. It's happening happening at the same time as we're getting ready to find out which Canadian astronaut will be part of this Artemis II mission. So Canada making its mark in space again, which is always exciting. I think back to Mark Garneau and going to space. The Canada arm, of course, was a big part of, uh, of Canada's story when I was in high school, and it certainly left an impression on all of us about what Canada, Canada is capable of in this marvel we call space exploration. Well, joining me now is Gordon Nozinski. He's Principal Investigator for the Canadian Lunar Rover Mission and Professor in Earth and Planetary Science at Western University. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on the show. I've heard you quoted already to say this is an incredibly exciting time for you because, I mean, if I think back to how often we've talked about the moon in you know, in this century, a little bit with some of the different exploration that's gone on, but really, it seems to have had a real surge in the last few years. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. The last few years have been the most exciting of my career in terms of you know lunar exploration and things getting real as well. You know, we we tend to do a lot of studies about you know how could we get back to the moon, um, but now it's actually happening for real, and of course, both with robots and humans in the next few years. Tell me a bit about the lunar rover mission, because it is a fascinating one, and it is a Canadian one. Yes, so this is going to be Canada's first ever rover mission to, you know, anywhere in the solar system. So, you know, just that makes this a very exciting time. Um, I think, you know, hopefully we'll look back and it'll be a big milestone in the Canadian space program. You know, we think of the first ast- Canadian astronaut in space, you know, the Canada arm on the shuttle right. the space station. Um, But this is something we've been talking about for decades as a community, is putting that Canadian expertise in robotics and kind of mobility vehicles and the science, of course, and bringing that together and doing our very own rover mission. So tell me a bit about this, about the Canadian lunar rover. How big is it? How does it work? I gather it works on solar power, which is really fascinating. Yeah, so this is what we call a micro rover class. So the whole, you know, thing weighs about 30 kilograms. And so if you compare that to, you know, the Mars rovers that are currently up there, Curiosity and Perseverance, they weigh almost a metric ton each. So this is, you know, very much a scaled down version of uh, those, you know, big rovers that are exploring Mars currently. Part of that is, you know, due to, uh, you know, how much it costs to, to build rovers. And part of it, too, is that um, we've been putting, and Canadensis, the lead company who's building this rover, have been putting a lot of emphasis on designing these kind of small, agile, uh, both micro and nano scale rovers. Yeah, I, I think I was actually at, uh, I saw a rover sample when I was reporting from London near Reading. There was, there we saw one that was sort of, I mean, they're fascinating little devices, right, and how they work. Uh, tell me about what this one will be looking for, because I understand uh, it will be going to a part of the moon that we continue to to marvel over and still know not much about considering. Exactly. And so that's, you know, not only are we going to have a first ever Canadian rover mission, we're going to go to somewhere where currently we've nobody in the world has ever been to. Um, So we're going to the South Polar region. Based on what we've learned from satellites, this is a really interesting region for probably a couple of main reasons. One is that it's a region close to this gigantic impact basin called the South Pole Aiken Basin. And uh, it's the one of the largest in meteorite impact craters in the solar system. And some of the oldest rocks on the moon are found there. And in fact, this big basin may have even excavated down deep enough to 
you know, throw out bits of the moon's mantle. And so we should hopefully have a very varied uh, geology uh, to be doing in this region of the moon. Uh, and then the other, you know, exciting thing is it's uh, a place on the moon where we think there might be water ice present. So back 50 years when the Apollo astronauts went, we thought of the moon as a, you know, essentially dead, dry object out there in the solar system. But we've learned since from looking at both the Apollo samples and observations from orbit, from satellites, that, you know, there could well be some water ice there. And, you know, that's interesting, not just scientifically, um, but it opens the door to potentially using that as a resource, you know, for humans, for oxygen, for water, and even to turn into rocket fuel to uh, enable, you know, further uh, exploration of the solar system. Yeah, it could be a big part of future missions, right? The uh, The missions that are being planned. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, you know, we can think of ourselves as a, a reconnaissance rover, um, because if we if we want to do what NASA and the World Space Agencies want to do in the long term, which is to establish, a, you know, a permanent lunar base, we're going to have to find a source of water on the moon, um, because otherwise it's just too expensive, too unwieldy, you know, to be launching all of that material from Earth to the moon every time. The conditions are extreme, right, considering where it's going. Uh, tell me a bit about what it's going to have to be able to endure and how it's going to stay, how you're going to stay in contact with it, keep it powered up and so on, considering where it's going. I mean, I know we have rovers on Mars, so it makes it, it's not impossible, but it certainly is challenging. It is, yeah, and actually more challenging than Mars. Um, really? Okay. Yeah, because of uh, the moon's, you know, orbit around us and the sun, uh, it has night and day uh, like we do and like Mars does. But its days are about 14 Earth days long. And then it has a long 14 day, you know, Earth equivalent lunar night. And so just like on Earth, right, what happens on the nighttime, you know, it progressively cools over that period. And because it's so long, the temperatures during that lunar night can get down to, you know, a staggering mind-boggling, minus 200 degrees Celsius. You know, of all the challenges we've got to overcome, it's making sure that we can keep this robot alive during that long winter night. And then, you know, hopefully everything turns back on again when, uh, it, you know, it wakes up the, the next lunar day. How do you manage to replicate those conditions here to try to test it to make sure it's ready to go when it lands? So there are, you know, not many places where you can do this. You know, we can't kind of do those temperature kind of experiments here on, on our campus. Um, but Canadensis and uh, there's some facilities that the Canadian Space Agency run where, you know, we, we put these spacecraft, you know, through the ringer, as it were. You know, we test for things like vibration, high temperatures, and of course, uh, low temperatures in the, in this case too. So it is possible. Um, and there are a few, you know, very specialized labs where we can, you know, subject the individual components to uh, those kinds of temperatures to make sure, you know, things will work. Um, and the other thing too is that, you know, it's not going to be completely switched off. We're, you know, a lot of focus is going on the, the battery development here because, you know, that needs to be fully charged up with the solar panels you mentioned earlier. And then, you know, we'll basically keep those critical systems warm enough, you know, not room temperature, but warmer than minus 200 during that lunar night. And then, you know, we'll come back to the lunar day and be able to recharge and hopefully off we go again. Yeah, up to 100 degrees Celsius during the day as well. And I guess, I mean, it's interesting how yeah. you've adapted the ability for the rover to charge itself and to function based on 
the circumstances it finds itself in, which I suppose makes perfect sense scientifically. Uh, but it would it would it would sleep every fourteen days and then work twenty four hours a day when it can. So you're sort of adapting to the day and night cycles of where it is. Yep, exactly. And we're going to have to do the same, right? Right. Um, of course, I didn't yeah, think of that. Know, of course, you yeah, were too. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. um, you know the Mars rovers now, um, they may operate, you know, twenty four seven early early on, but they typically because it, they they're so long lived, you know, they fall into you know, almost you know nine to five type of operations. But because you know that lunar day is so short, fourteen days, and Part of this mission is just to prove we can get through a few lunar nights. And so, you know, going into this, it might, you know, we got to do all we can in that first 14 days. So for sure, you know, we'll be working in shifts. We got to figure out that operations and how, you know, we'll hand over shifts uh, and uh, be operating at 24-7 for that first period. Kordosinski is with us. He's principal investigator for the Canadian Lunar Rover Mission and a professor in Earth and Planetary Science at Western University in London. So what are we looking at in terms of timeline? I mean, I remember the first Canadian. I mean, I remember Mark Garneau going to space and I remember the Canada Arm and what huge moments those were. I mean, I was a school kid, right? And I can I suspect this will be similar for a lot of people around Canada when we finally see this. I mean, the buildup is great, but when we see this Canadian rover on the moon, it's going to be a big deal. Yeah, I certainly hope so. And, you know, I certainly hope that it'll be exciting for, you know, Canadians across the country. You know, I think probably the first, you know, big, you know, public moment, of course, will be the launch. Um, you know, hopefully many of us can witness that. Um, presumably that will be down in uh, the U.S. somewhere, probably Florida. And then, you know, there'll be a few days or weeks, uh, the transport to the moon, and then, yeah, hopefully a successful landing. And in terms of timing... Hoping 2026. You often get delays, especially in by, you know, we're doing something for the first time, um, but we're definitely aiming for, you know, the earliest date would be 2026, which, you know, given the 2023 already, that's only three years away. And and also, we've been seeing what's been coming from the James Webb Telescope. Uh, I, I would think that with this rover, we'll be able to see things in ways we haven't seen them before either, if all goes according to plan. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as we mentioned earlier, we're going to a part of the moon we've never been to. So, you know, I think everything we learn about this region of the moon will be new. We'll be, you know, testing hypotheses that we do have for this region. But uh, as previous missions to the moon have shown us that, you know, there's always something, you know, serendipitous findings, new discoveries, new types of rock that we never thought existed on the moon. And so, yeah, hopefully lots of exciting science to be done ahead. It's always impressive how Canada has um, has contributed to so much to space. Given given we're not we're not huge, right? But we really have tailored ourselves a nice spot when it comes to our expertise and stuff such as robotics. And it's nice to see this next generation of it come forward. Um, and I imagine it inspires a lot of people that that study with you and work with you. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know a lot of us in the community do feel that we you know we punch punch above our weight, as the saying goes. Indeed. You know, a relatively small, modest, modestly funded space program, and yet we get to do these, you know, very high profile things. And so, you know, it very is it is very exciting for, you know, our community to be able to do this. And uh, yeah, you know, definitely for my students, you know, um, it's a hugely exciting time, and you know, hopefully trickles down into schools. Right? Um, I don't expect. All those kids and youth out there who'll be following this rover and watching it land to get into the space program. But if it inspires them to get interested in, you know, science, technology, you know, engineering, math, those STEM disciplines where we so need people to go into, you know, if this is the little thing that inspired them, like Apollo did for so many people, then that would be fantastic. 
And between now and then, what's left to, uh, what does the next little while bring for you in terms of making sure this rover is uh, ready to go? Uh, well, we've almost got everything to do, right? Yes. Um, yeah, we're uh, we're in the phase right now with this next few months of really locking in the design. And so, you know, fine-tuning uh, what we put in the concept study over the last couple of years. Um, so, you know, that's both for the instruments, for the rover itself. We're also actually over the next few months trying to focus in on where we would land on the moon because that is not set yet. You know, the South Pole is a big region. Right. And so we're going to be working as our team, but then coming together with other groups who will be also on the same launch as us and, you know, hopefully come to an agreement of, uh, you know, the best place to put down this rover. So, and that's all happening in the, the next few months. So a busy few months, and then we kind of probably yeah. ease off a bit and build phase, and then it'll be busy again at the end. Because it's, it is an international collaboration, right? Even though it's Canadian built, it is. It, there's lots of other seats at the table. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, so this is, uh, you know, we're we're not launching it. We don't actually have that capability in Canada. And so the Canadian Space Agency and NASA, you know, reached an agreement whereby uh, NASA is going to provide the launch. And uh, in return, we have actually one of the six uh, science instruments on here is also provided by the U.S., but as well as us, you know, we're a component, there'll be other things, you know, a lander and potentially other things on that lander that will also be part of that same launch uh, going to the surface of the moon, too. Every time people mention design, I remember, again, as I mentioned earlier, seeing one, I think the European Space Agency, uh, one that they were testing on sand and so on. And it looked like a little insect, essentially. And you always think of them looking, looking like Wally, right? I mean, that's kind of the rolling yeah, around. It's yeah. sort of very human looking. Just in general, what does this one sort of look? Do we know what it looks like yet? We've got some Canadensis have some great prototypes and, uh, you know, some of that is available online right now. So this is, you know, it's a wheeled rover, kind of almost trapezoid shape, right? um, where there's a lot of the the outer uh, surface of this will be covered in solar panels so that, you know, we have solar panels in various different orientations and as much as is physically possible to, you know, really to be able to charge up that battery. And so, you know, all of the, the fun stuff is on the inside. There'll be the cameras and things on the outside for navigation and for science as well. Built for survival, not necessarily for beauty, right? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Gordon Nazinski, thank you so much. Uh, It's a pleasure being on the show. Warmer temperatures in the Arctic and elsewhere are thawing the region's permafrost. That's that frozen layer of soil beneath the ground. And because of it, what's lying there now frozen in time, quite literally, after you know things that have been dormant for tens of thousands of years may suddenly come alive again and that could pose some threat to animal plant and human health um and again while a pandemic unleashed you know or disease from the past because it's come up does sound like that clip from the Val Kilmer movie, The Thaw. I was just playing. In fact, that's exactly the premise of the movie. It shouldn't be dismissed altogether. Scientists do warn that the risks, though very low, are somewhat underappreciated. This is happening. And just to make matters slightly, and again, there's nothing to panic about here at all, but just to add a little bit another layer, quite, you know, another layer to this story, no pun intended. It's not just stuff that's been lying there for tens of thousands of years that can be a bit of a problem. It's stuff that we buried there in the more recent past. Things we thought, you know what, we'll just, we'll just throw it here, like DDT, for instance, chemical and radioactive waste and so on. We'll just 
bury it here. And you know what? It'll never, ever come back to haunt us. Well, guess what? It could. It might. Uh, joining us more with uh, joining us now with more on this is Kimberly Miner. She's a climate climate scientist at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. Kimberly, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me here. This is one of those great topics where it's both scientific and uh, and fictional all at once because there's been so much made about these things. But what's happening to the permafrost now, and 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 how is it impacting things that have been frozen beneath it for a very long time? So basically what's happening is that the poles, so both the North and South poles are getting warmer at four times the rate of the rest of the planet. So, you know, the, the whole planet is warming up uh, gradually because of climate change, global warming, but then it's, it's magnified at the poles. So it's getting four times more warm. And then underlying the, the poles is this permafrost. So that's substrate or soil that's been frozen for two years or more. In some places, it's been frozen for over, you know, a million years, thousands, thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. And those areas are starting to thaw simply because it's getting warmer and there's more moisture in the form of rain or in the form of meltwater. So all of these different layers have grown over thousands and thousands of years. And that means that all the dead animals, all the dead plants, all the things that make up soil are layered in there. And as the permafrost starts to thaw with this huge pulse of warming, some of it is now becoming um, exposed to the modern environment, exposed to the air. There's chunks of it that are falling away. And we're now starting to encounter, if you will, all sorts of things that live in that older layers, including microbes. So there are much older microbes that may have evolved or co-evolved before we were even in the Arctic as people. And now they're coming out to rejoin our modern environment. And that's why, you know, folks are a little bit confused and concerned about what's going on. Canadians should be aware of permafrost. It covers about half the country, I believe. So what is buried there? And I understand there's sort of two layers to this. There's the things that have been there for a very long time. And there's some more recent things that have been put there, you know, in, in, in more recent history that could also be uh, dangerous for other reasons. We built them, we buried them, and there they are. Uh, maybe we could start with, with the stuff that's been there for a very long time. Because I understand there's even been one uh, virus that's been revived that was, you know, 50,000 years old almost. Yeah, so you hit the nail on the head exactly, Ben. So we're talking about older things that are from a different ecosystem, from a different time, if you will. And what caught the news last week was uh, a new study that they were able to revive an old virus. Remember, a virus is just something that replicates itself in another organism. So not necessarily like the flu. Um, it's just a subclass of microbes. So we've got a whole section of organisms that are in the permafrost that way. And then we've got a whole section of stuff that humans have put there. So in some parts of Canada, that may mean uh, buried gasoline. That may even mean buried DDT from when the Alaska Highway was built. That could mean nuclear waste, unfortunately, in some parts of Greenland from where Camp Century is. So there's all sorts of stuff that humans have left there. In addition to all the microbes and all the old stuff from before humans were there and then when humans started interacting with the land. So it's kind of a big, it's potentially a big mess of, of stuff of different kinds of anthropogenic chemicals, microbes, viruses. And it really leads me to believe that the very best thing we could possibly do is work really hard to fight climate change and keep the permafrost frozen. 
maybe we could start with the older stuff, because I think that's the stuff that really captures the headlines, these kind of, and we've seen stories already, I think, in Siberia, where old viruses, I think it was anthrax at one point, which is not an old, it was not, wasn't necessarily, you know, sort of laying as some sort of biological weapon frozen, but just was there. Um, maybe with the old stuff, what what is the threat? What is the concern? So I think that the concern, we could we could make it up into this big fictional thing like you're kind of talking about and pretend that um, we're worried that something could come out and hurt basically humans, I think is right. the main concern, and become a big virus or become a big disease. And I don't think that's necessarily very accurate to what we're actually seeing in the permafrost. I think the real concern is that there are microbes that co-evolved with different plants and different animals. And if they come into this ecosystem, that's totally different than what it used to be, even in Paleolithic times, we're not sure how it's going to interact with the plants and animals now. And as Canadians, you will absolutely understand that having a thriving and vital ecosystem on top of the permafrost is really, really important, right? We're talking about salmon, we're talking about moose, we're talking Mm -hmm. about all the different ungulates. And it's unclear what kind of interaction these microbes could have with the modern day species. And I think that is really the main concern. Yeah, I, I think because of COVID too, we've all been very awake to this stuff, right? So it it, it carries a bit of a different uh, a different impact when people read about it. Uh, now for the newer stuff, the stuff that's been buried to be forgotten about, but in the more recent past, clearly that represents potentially more of a threat because, as you mentioned earlier, it can be stuff that's now banned, for instance, like DDT. And I think that, you know, recent history has shown that there is some concern there. There was a site in BC that had to be excavated because there was DDT leaking out of buried barrels that folks didn't even realize were there. And there is a concern that there may be more spots, whether it's, you know, old mines that have been uh, left and forgotten, whether it's seepage from things that are buried, whether it's um, oil drilling sites. All of this different chemicals can go into the environment and transport. Yeah, I guess we often had in the past, we've often, well, forever, we've had this idea that you bury it and the problem goes away. And that clearly that's being proven to be untrue, given what's happening. Well, that's the thing, Ben. I think we've kind of treated the permafrost and even glaciers as a little bit of our own cold storage freezer. And while that may be the case for some folks as far as food storage is concerned, it's not necessarily a good place to put chemicals that we don't want, right? And there's a little bit of a difference there if you're using it as a seasonal cold storage freezer for food versus if you're hoping that it stays solid for 30 or 40 years because these chemicals are toxic. So a reality check here, the threat itself, um, it's certainly there. It it makes for great headlines. But the threat you say is, is relatively small, but we should be paying attention to this. Yeah, I think that the threat of losing the continuity and how strong the permafrost is, is much greater. And Ben, I think you all know that, whether it's because of infrastructure damages or seepage or even just the way that the soil is moving into the water and and ruining salmon spawning habitat. There's a lot going on with the permafrost movement right now, and I'm not sure that the viruses that remind us of the Last of Us TV show are exactly the number one thing for us to be thinking about. What should we be doing then? I mean, clearly, uh, we should be monitoring this just to know what's happening. And it does cover such a huge piece of territory right around the world. We should be monitoring. Are we monitoring it closely enough? 
I think we are doing our best across scales. So like you said earlier, Ben, you know, permafrost covers 25% of the land surface, which is a huge area. And a lot of that is in Siberia, and we're not able to access it right now. As far as Canada goes, uh, there are satellite programs that we run and the, the Canadian uh, services run and the European services run to look at permafrost from very far away. There are airborne missions to look at it from airplanes. And there's a lot, a lot of fieldwork going on. NASA's doing fieldwork. Canadian institutions are doing fieldwork. The First Nations are doing fieldwork. Everyone is trying to understand how the permafrost is changing. And there's a lot of people with really, really strong science backgrounds, good hearts, good intentions, who are doing work just as fast as they can to try and understand what the threats could be. And with threats, I should have mentioned this earlier, with threats, there are also potentially lifelines buried there, too. There are things we could discover that could help humanity. I think that it's an interesting premise, but I think my question would be, do the benefits outweigh the cost? So if we're talking about some mining resources that help in the energy transition, for example, versus the cost of losing entire hillsides or losing entire salmon spawning grounds, um, having waste from nuclear and uh, DDT seepage come out, I think that we really need to think about the cost benefit of this. And we haven't even talked about the carbon um, output potential. So I think my perspective would be that the cost, the risks of losing a bunch of permafrost would definitely be greater than the benefits of anything that we might get from the permafrost because it's thawing. Right. I suppose what I meant was that as we see some of it thawing already, um, and as work goes on to try to mitigate some of that, uh, some of what's happening, uh, that there could potentially be things in the ground that we haven't, that we didn't know were there. Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of surprises, a lot of things that we don't know are there. It's very, like I said, there's a huge area and it's also very difficult to do the microbial sampling, which is why when there's one virus that's revived, you know, it's a big deal because it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort um, to get the genomics of the microbes and understand where they are and what their functionality is. There's also potential for uh, medical breakthroughs if we find microbes who are Um, able to function differently, who have different survival strategies, you know, we can learn things that way. And I think that that's going to be a potential regardless of whether or not the permafrost is thawing. We could slow or stop permafrost thaw and still have the ability to take permafrost cores and learn things from the microbes entrained within. It strikes me that that when we talk about permafrost, it's a bit like talking about the oceans. There's so much that we don't know about something that covers so much of of what we live on. I think that's a neat analogy, Ben. Yeah. And I think that the depth is really interesting too, because it's layers and layers and layers of history of what has been going on in the land for thousands and hundreds of thousands of years. So it's a little bit of a, our heritage as uh, people and the first nations who have been there since time immemorial. And, and both buried in that is both, of course, the good and the bad of history. I I have no doubt. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And you definitely see that in the more recent layers that have the human-made chemicals that have been buried there. Well, Kimberly Miner, thank you so much for the update on this. I guess for, for listeners to understand, these headlines both they capture a lot of attention, but the threat of a virus escaping some sort of deadly virus, we'll leave that for, for fiction for the time being. Yeah, I think we can leave that for fiction then. Kimberly, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. I did something last night that I haven't done in a very long time. I watched the Oscars, or at least all of the Oscars. In the past, I'd watched a little bit of it here and there. 
I saw the slap the year before. I saw them give the wrong Best Picture Award back a few years ago when La La Land didn't win, Moonlight did. Um, but last night, I actually sat down and watched a majority of them. Part of the reason why was because we had interviewed some people who were up for some of the awards. So I was curious to see if they would win or not. That's always one of the excitements. If you have a stake in the game, it's fun, right? It's like anything. And there were a number of Canadians up for some pretty decent awards last night. And so it made it uh, made it interesting to watch. I think a lot of us, a lot of people I know, were, were, were as, as excited as I've ever seen people be about the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. Of course, that went to Sarah Pauly for Women Talking. Sarah Pauly, who so many of us watched grow up, who was developed in this, into this remarkably talented uh, artist and person in general, made this wonderful film based on a book uh, by Manitoba author Miriam Taves, uh, which she wrote back in 2018. And so uh, Sarah Pauly helped adapt it, and there it was. It won for Best um, Adapted Screenplay, and that was a big moment. It wasn't the only big moment, but it was certainly one of the biggest moments of the night for this country. Here's what Sarah Pauly had to say when she won. First of all, I just want to um, thank the Academy for not being mortally offended by the words women and talking, but so close together like that. <laughs> Cheers. Um, Miriam Taves wrote an essential novel about a radical act of democracy in which people who don't agree on every single issue manage to sit together in a room and carve out a way forward together free of violence. <laughs> they do so not just by talking, but also by listening. The last line of our film is delivered by a young woman to a new baby, and she says, your story will be different from ours. It's a promise, a commitment, and an anchor. There was Sarah Pauly accepting her award for her Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. It's her first. Uh, she beat out nominees for Top Gun, uh, Top Gun Maverick, rather, rather. Um, uh, Knives Out, Mr. Glass Onion, which I saw too, All Quiet on the Western Front. It was a big deal. It was great to see her up there. She it was a great speech. People were excited. Um, there was a few other... Uh, the award for Navalny for Best Doc went to a Canadian as well, who gave a great speech. And um, Brendan Fraser. Now, okay, he's a dual citizen, right? Uh, but he, his parents are Canadian. He went to Upper Canada College in Toronto. So we'll claim him for tonight, right? He won for The Whale, uh, in which Fraser plays a 600-pound uh, reclusive gay English teacher desperate to restore his friendship with his daughter. And during his acceptance speech, Fraser thanked director Darren Aronofsky for giving him the role. I'm grateful to Darren Aronofsky for throwing me a creative lifeline and hauling me aboard the good ship, The Whale, that was written by Samuel D. Hunter, who is our lighthouse. Gentlemen, you laid your whale-sized hearts bare so that we could see into your souls like no one else could do. And it is my honor to be named alongside you in this category. And it was. It was a big night for Canada. It was fun to win. There was um, another award for Best uh, Hairstyle Makeup and Hairstyle for that same uh, that same movie, The Whale. We'll talk about that as well. And as I mentioned, Daniel Rohr, the Toronto director, won for Best Documentary for Navalny. Um, joining me now with more on all this, Cam Maitland is a film and content specialist at Hollywood Suite. Cam, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I was saying, uh, I've said it a few times today, it's rare that we all cheer when the award for Best Adapted Screenplay gets handed <laughs> out. But wow, that was quite the moment last night. It was a great night for Canada, wasn't it? 
Yeah, you know, we had uh, four really big winners, uh, a lot of, you know, relatively young talent, which is really good. I, I feel like, you know, the last time I remember big is like Christopher Plummer, which was kind of a <laughs> lifetime achievement. Uh, and I mean, we've had big years often, sometimes celebrating the Quebec industry recently. There was a couple sweeps there just to have talented Canadians and some that I think people may not even know are Canadian uh, taking some really big awards and making big speeches is great. Yeah. And and you're right. When I think back, I mean, I think of the barbarian invasions, Denny Arcand winning way mm. back when. Uh, obviously, Denis Villeneuve has had a bit of a run and some of his work has gotten Canadians up onto that stage. But I suppose there's something special about Sarah Pauly. I was trying to explain it. We kind of watched her grow up. A lot of Canadians watched her grow up into this incredibly talented artist that she is today. I think there was a sort of a sense of belonging when we saw her win and get up and give her speech. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think even if you think of just her kind of time with Oscar, like she was obviously in the suite hereafter, which was a big deal for Canadians mm -hmm. getting so close, lost to Titanic. So That's right. That's uh, right. like it didn't have much of a chance, but hey, another Canadian filmmaker, I suppose. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that Sarah Pauly, there's a special place in our hearts just because she also, you know, regularly engages with Canadian art and is involved in a lot of Canadian things. Obviously, this film is adapted from a Canadian author as well. So there's some there. Uh, and I also think that this uh, was very nice, at least uh, I don't know how deep people are in award season, but for those of us who watched a lot of the campaigning, Sarah Polly's campaigning was just kind of her being herself. The fact that she is like level headed and chill, but very political. And I think that that kind of just like knocked people's socks off in Hollywood. Just somebody who is so comfortable with themselves and their politics and uh, can just kind of roll with anything. She's as at home in Telluride as she is just, you know, yeah. being totally normal. Yeah, she she it was very her her whole presentation up there. If you're a Canadian, you'd recognize it as being sort of quintessentially cool Canada. Right? That was what mm, I thought when yes, I saw it. Yes, yes, kind of yeah. that Gen X uh, art vibe that I think also some people uh, long for. Right, like uh, that big kind of Toronto film boom that happened in the '90s. Yeah, it's just we don't get to see much of that anymore. So it's nice to know that those people are still out there and still making art that connects with, uh, you know, critics and audiences. Yeah. And, and some some other I mean, you know, there's debates about I guess about there is debates about Brendan Fraser's nationality a little bit. But sure. Yeah, yeah but that, it's that a was, bit of a stretch. It's a bit he of a stretch. still legally is. Canadian. He is. We like to lay claim. But mm. but but there was but um, Adrian Morrow won for that movie, too, which which yes. for the whale. And that was a big win because he was you know, he's he's there's no no questioning where he's from. Yeah, exactly. And he is uh, he's somebody that uh, a makeup artist that did go to L.A. to kind of like make his trade. But he is somebody who comes back quite frequently working in the Quebec industry uh, quite often. They call him in. Uh, and this is also a big achievement for him. He does work regularly with Darren Aronofsky. He's kind of been his go to makeup and prosthetics guy for a few years. But he even said that, you know, this job was so daunting that he considered not doing it. Um, but it's, it's also an interesting collaboration because he talks so much about how, you know, this massive prosthetic and makeup piece, it took at, at its fastest, I think it was two and a half hours to get on and 45 minutes to get on the suit. And then also, you know, his team had to deal with if Brendan Fraser had to go to the bathroom, he had to give them like 45 minutes notice to get him partially out of it. So I think that so much of this performance, he, he's like he, Adrian Moreau says, you know, it's about 
you not noticing, you forgetting that this whole uh, suit is involved. And I think that, yeah, it's, it's like a really a credit to his team and his own imagination to kind of make it doable. He said that without, they kind of, uh, they had a cooling system in the suit and they tried it without once. And in seven minutes, he sweat the whole thing off. So it's like <laughs> so much experimentation and uh, yeah, like nuance involved that I think if you're not in the makeup industry, you don't understand. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it's not a movie I loved, but I think between the two of them you, you got to give it to kind of both of them for at least the amount of work they did and and daniel Rohr, of course of, of from toronto was was nominated with one for for navalny i mean canada's always been pretty good at the on the documentary side we had some anim- animated shorts we had an animated long yeah. Domi, Domi sure who won back in uh, 2019 for bow was back in again so kind of a great crop of young talented canadians out there doing interesting work yeah i think that that's that's the thing too is it's always great to see we are kind of, you know, our roots of our film industry are with the NFB, with documentary making and animation. And it's nice to see that torch being passed. And it's nice to see young people getting the opportunities, you know, quickly enough. Uh, Daniel Rohr uh, did quite well with his uh, Robbie Robertson documentary mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years ago. And yeah, to know that <laughs> it could be anybody. Documentaries are kind of, it can be anybody. So it's all about just being there and being open and uh, following the story. And Navalny is like, uh, you know, it ended up being sort of the Oscars chance to be political, you know, uh, they turned down Zelensky showing up. So this was really their chance to uh, make a statement uh, about Ukraine as well by giving this the Oscar. Um, and yeah, again, as somebody that composed themselves so well, all good speeches, you know, it's, uh, it's just heartening to know that there's all these people kind of still coming up and, and still connecting, even if it's in the American industry. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen the Flying Sailor win. I thought that was really excellent. It was an NFB short, but it was so quintessentially an NFB short. Uh, wouldn't it be nice if it won? But both uh, that and uh, Domi Schur's movie, Red, also didn't win in those categories. But great to be nominated in that area where Canada has traditionally done really well at the Oscars. Yeah, totally. You can't. Uh, and I believe the the Flying Sailor's uh, animators have won before. Am I wrong mm-hmm. in that? I think so, they won. Yeah, they won individually way back. We interviewed them on the yeah. show, actually. We do, they won individually way back, but I think as a duo, they haven't won yet. Uh, okay. Well, you know, I always think that once you got your foot in, too, you, you got a good chance. Those categories are also changing so fast. I mean, I think that a different year, Turning Red obviously went straight to streaming, which I think kind of hurt its chances. Also, you have a like a big player like Guillermo del Toro you're up against, which is quite tough. And I know that actually a lot of people talked about uh, the winning animated short was, again, it was produced by Apple. It has all these celebrity voices. Uh, it's kind of uh, not what you traditionally would see in that category. And people are wondering if maybe the short categories are changing a bit now that uh, they can be easily online and easily sent to streaming services. Yeah, with the heavy hitters, which brings me to to the sort of the, the could we call it the dark, the slightly dark cloud wrapped in that golden <laughs> statue for Canada last night, which is a lot of what we saw last night was in fact, paid for or at least invested in not in Canada and that's that's a cause for always in this country a cause a bit of a cause for concern when you see your great talents like Sarah Pauly having to turn to other people to get their films made yeah I mean it's it's kind of a double-edged sword it's very interesting because I I don't know that I necessarily disagree with a lot of our standards for, you know, what qualifies as Canadian filmmaking and something like women talking I think especially is 
the closest to on the line without going over as you can be. But the truth is, yeah, it's mostly funded by Plan B, Brad Pitt's company and Francis McDormand's company. And Francis McDormand, I believe, is the person who had the Miriam Taves novel and was very eager to adapt it. So there's no fault there. I don't know that a Canadian company even got a chance. They probably right. were outbid. It is interesting that you're seeing a film, you know, that has Sheila McCarthy and has lots of great Canadian actors in it. It is written and directed by a Canadian, uh, I believe, a shot here. It is, for instance, coming up, not going to be in the Canadian Screen Awards whatsoever because it simply does not qualify. I don't know how to feel because it it is a win generally for, I think, Canadian art and Canadian artists. And I think that this is always a springboard where... You know, somebody like David Cronenberg could use it just to come back to Canada. And I think that with somebody like Sarah Pauly, you're fairly certain that that's probably what she's going to do. She's going to invest any cred she gets back into something that will do something for Canada. I think we should just sort of revel in it because a whole generation of folks will be watching this and thinking, hey, that's a Canadian holding a statuette up there. And that's, you know, isn't that great? Maybe I can do the same. And, you know, that that to me. But you're right. I mean, the, the funding of it and the whole way that film works here is financing works here. Yeah. It's complicated. But also, the, I think the thing to remember is <laughs> nobody's making money off of any of this, right? Like, no. even if uh, what you're lamenting essentially is that none of the box office of women talking is coming to Canada, like, uh, fine. Like, it's not going <laughs> to, it's, guess what? I don't think it's going to make a huge profit. I think, yeah, just, just celebrate this as a win. And especially as, like, fans of movies, this is only positive. Uh, the other stuff is just kind of intra-industry hand-wringing and, you know, somebody will bring it up in Parliament. I'm sure we'll be hearing about this for months. <laughs> yeah. Getting onto the subject of the movie that really cleaned up last night, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which I've seen, I thought it was, I saw it quite early on, thought it was mm -hmm. very entertaining. But you look back over the past few years and it looks like the Academy is sort of shifting what qualifies as a best picture. And I think that's been a really interesting phenomenon of late. So, you know, the Fablemans and some of the other blockbusters didn't do as well. And then some of the smaller films did very well. I mean, I, I guess everything everywhere all at once is not technically a small film, but it's certainly when I saw it, I didn't think this is going to win an Oscar. No, I agree. It's kind of in between, which is the interesting thing. It became such a dominant force towards the end here that I think a lot of people forget that this is like a movie made by like pretty idiosyncratic filmmakers. I guess the biggest quote unquote star to the average American is Jamie Lee Curtis. It's a very unusual film. And it is also, it's an interesting movie where I think, you know, you see that it's produced by the Russo brothers and you're like, okay, that's not really independent, is it? But it sounds like a lot of these people just put up their own money and they could not really convince anyone to you know go very far with this film it was very you know it's very put together out of love more than anything and you see a lot of the uh technicians who talk like the, the editor saying this is my second movie yeah I love because that. they <laughs> had to rely on people who were brand new because they just couldn't afford you know they had to cut corners where they could and they ended up with something pretty amazing and and it made all sorts of history with which is also interesting beyond like a lot of the asian representation which is obviously massive and has been a huge hurdle for the industry even as near as parasite where none of the actors were nominated you're seeing stuff like this is the first movie since network to win three acting trophies and best picture which is pretty wild only network and streetcar named desire have done that I think when you say it's interesting as well, because, you know, it's it made over a hundred million dollars. So it isn't quite, 
you know, Parasite or, or something that is a smaller hit that maybe audiences are going to go watch. I think a lot of the average folks have seen everything everywhere all at once, which I think is is big. I'm, I'm waiting to kind of hear the ratings. I kind of presume The Last of Us probably ate the Oscars lunch, but I do think that this was a good year after they did all those stunts last year, cutting time and putting fan awards, I think that we were lucky to have a movie like this really cleaning up because it did really connect with audiences. It also connected, a lot of people say like, oh, is this the changing face of the Academy? But I like to point out that the Producers Guild Awards also voted for everything everywhere all at once. That's a pretty white group. It's right. a pretty conservative group. And they also have a preferential ballot. So that means that nobody hated this movie, you know, like at least even the most kind of uh, died in the wool classic hollywood guys think that this was an okay movie cam thank you so much thank you 